You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For you note-takers, I am titling this study, Victory is Ours. (laughs) Sorry. No. You can imagine, can't you, like in that movie, Master and Commander, you know, you're on a a ship and you're, 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 you know, kind of coming alongside a pirate ship that you're going to, you know, breach and then you're going to rescue the captives on board and shouting as you dispatch the pirates, you know, victory is ours. And in any event, that's what David is communicating in this psalm. Let me read two verses, and then we'll pray, and we'll get into it. Psalm 108, verse 12 and 13. David writes, Give us help from trouble, and he acknowledges what you and I know to be true. For the help of man is useless. Through God we will do valiantly, for it is he who who shall tread down our enemies." Well, Father, this morning we ask that you would do your perfect work in each of our lives. Lord, we've come and we've already worshipped, and we understand that, that worship is so important. Number one, because it's our opportunity as a fellowship to join together and to exalt your name. And to acknowledge that there is no one that has, has a, a superior place in our heart that you and you alone occupy the throne of our heart to express our love, our thanksgiving, our worship, our adoration to you. But Lord, we also understand that during worship, having done all of that and to bless you, that it prepares our hearts and our minds to receive the implanted word that is going to be communicated this morning. And so Father, we pray that you would grab hold of our attention, that there would be no distraction, nothing at all that could keep us from hearing, understanding, and allowing your word to have its perfect application in our lives today. And so, Lord, teach us, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, for you Bible scholars who have read Psalm 108, you may remember kind of going through and thinking, huh, I think I've read this before. And you would be right, because David in Psalm 108 lifts part of Psalm 57 and part of Psalm 60 puts them together in this psalm. By way of example, the first five verses of Psalm 108 come from Psalm 57, verses 7 to 11. And then verses 6 to 13 in our psalm this morning, David lifted from Psalm chapter 60, verse 5 to 12. Well, that kind of raises the question, it's like, wait, wait, was David having kind of a senior moment here? (laughs) You know, late in life by candlelight and low oxygen maybe and just like, whoa, that sounds great. I'm just going to put this together, not realizing he was just borrowing from two psalms that he wrote earlier in his life. Or critics of the Bible, those who don't believe in God might say, hey, this is evidence that the Bible's not inspired by, the, by, by any kind of divine being because here he's repeating himself. Well, I reject both of those and any other criticisms of this psalm. Brother, I want to suggest that this psalm, inspired by the Holy Spirit, takes these two parts of Psalm 57 and, or Psalm 57 and 60 and puts them together, together in a new way to present the same truth but in a fresh light, 
In other words, sometimes we need to see things from a different perspective to apprehend the fullness of what God is communicating. I'll use the example of a kaleidoscope, which if you're in the room today and under 50, you may not even know what that is. (laughs) When I was a kid, it was a great uh, little toy that people looked forward to playing with. Now it just pales by comparison to all the stuff you can do in a computer. But a kaleidoscope is basically a tube with a bezel at the end, and there's two pieces of glass, opaque glass, and in between those two pieces of glass are broken pieces of all sorts of colored glass. And when you look through it and hold it up to light and turn the bezel, those same pieces of colored glass form different patterns. Same glass, different patterns, depending on your perspective. Well, in a similar fashion, what God is doing in Psalm 108 is taking these truths out of Psalm 57 and 60 and presenting them in a different way to help us to get the whole picture or to understand the spiritual truths that God is communicating in a new and a fresh way so that we will apprehend them and apply them in our lives. Let me illustrate it in another way. Have you ever wondered why there are four Gospels? Right, if you're an English major, you're thinking, I could help the Holy Spirit here. All right, because you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the, what we call synoptic gospels, that really cover a lot of the same material. And then John comes along and kind of fills in some blanks that, that aren't communicating those three. So you might, as an English major, think, oh, let's just harmonize these things, and we don't need that, we don't need that, we'll just put the story together in one gospel. But that's not the way the Holy Spirit worked. Rather, wanting to communicate the vastness and the depth of Christ, his character, his nature, and his ministry, he gives us four different perspectives so that we might see the fullness of who he is and what he came to accomplish. So by way of illustration, the Gospel of Matthew, written by Matthew, who we know his Hebrew name was Levi, was writing to a Jewish audience. Many believe that that Matthew, again named Levi, was of the tribe of Levi and had been trained to be a priest in the temple, but at some point in his development rejected what was going on in the temple and instead embraced the world where he became a tax collector. Now we see evidence of that in his gospel because Matthew quotes the Old Testament more than all the other gospels combined. And here's why. He's writing to a Jewish audience who are hearing that Jesus is the promised Messiah, but their question is, where's the kingdom? We were looking for a king who was going to kick the Romans out and establish the throne of David and rule over the whole world. And Matthew is communicating that Jesus came first to die for our sins. He fulfilled the suffering servant, Messiah ben Joseph, and he'll come again as Messiah ben David to rule and reign. So as to a Jewish audience. So it's presenting Jesus as, if you will, the Lion of Judah, the King of Israel. Mark wrote his gospel with the Romans in mind. And you see that over and over again in the gospel of of Mark because he's emphasizing the servant nature of Christ. You recall when Jesus would interface with with a centurion. The Romans were all about authority, all about submission, all about obedience. And what Mark wants us to understand is that Jesus is the perfect servant of the Father. In everything he did and everything he said, he was perfect in his obedience to the Father. And as you read the Gospel of Mark, you'll hear the word over and over immediately, immediately, immediately. Because Jesus didn't need a second reminder. When the Father spoke, he spoke. When the Father said, go, he went. When the Father says, do, he did. And then Luke wrote from a classical Greek perspective. 
And any of you who have studied Greek philosophy, Greek art, understand into the Greek mind, the highest form of creation in the material realm was the male human being. And so Luke presents Jesus as the perfect man, the perfect human being. And we see all through the Gospel of Luke his compassion for humanity. And then finally we have John, the last to write his Gospel, moved by the Holy Spirit to present a clear presentation of Jesus' deity. John chapter one, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? And John writing not to the Greeks, not to the Romans, not to the Jews, but to the whole world, John three sixteen for God so loved the world. Here's the point. Matthew addresses the rulership, the, 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 the kingship of Jesus, presenting him as the Lion of Judah. Mark presents him as the perfect servant, like an ox who does the work of God. Luke presents Jesus as a perfect man. John presents Jesus as God in human flesh, represented by an eagle. What's fascinating is if you go into the book of the Revelation, you look at the four angelic creatures around the throne of God, and they have four faces, the face of a man, an ox, an eagle, and a lion, reflecting, if you will, the character and the glory of Christ. And so the point being is that sometimes we need to look at truth from different perspectives in order to apprehend all that God wants to communicate to us. And that's what he's doing in Psalm 108. Presenting some of the truths from Psalm 57 and Psalm 60, but in a new way that we might understand as David did, that in Christ Jesus, we have victory. In other words, this psalm is essentially a song of victory. And during the time of antiquity, when the Jewish armies would march against their enemies, this was the song that was on their lips. And today, even in the Israeli Defense Force, soldiers who know the Lord or those who are orthodox in their faith, this is the song they sing when they go into battle, knowing that if God is with them, no one can stand before them. They are assured of victory. And perhaps this is the reason that in Psalm 108, that while David lifts these verses out of these two other psalms, what he doesn't take out of those other two psalms are any of the trials and troubles that he talks about in Psalm 57 and Psalm 60. Rather, he focuses on and speaks only of the victory that we have in Christ. Now, for you note-takers, here's how the psalm breaks down. And I always like it, in my mind, just have it organized so that I can comprehend it and then remember it and use it in life. Verses one to six, David cries out and exhorts you and I. He says, I will praise him. In verses seven to nine, he says, I will listen to him. And in verses 10 to 13, he says, I will gain victory with him. And again, by way of application, David is communicating to us this morning what Paul echoes in the New Testament in Philippians chapter four, verse 13, where he says, I can do all things Not some, not most, not many. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so this psalm reminds us that we can face the battles of life with great confidence because the Lord has assured us of victory in him. I don't know about you, but for me, that's an important message having come out of a very miserable year in 2020 
with a lot of disappointment, a lot of trial, a lot of tribulation, a lot of challenges to faith. And now here we are at the end of January looking at 2021 and rather than a bright future thinking this could just be a repeat of last year. (laughs) And we need to know that despite the pandemic and the economy and a divisive election and unemployment and depression and hopelessness that in Christ Jesus we have victory. And that's so important because the world is watching. You see, it's easy for people in the world to ignore the gospel when things are going their way, when they have a good job, when they have a nice house, when they have full employment, where they're healthy and all of that. But take all that away and now they are looking for an answer. And God has ordained that you and I would be the vessels through which that answer comes. In other words, how we face those same trials that they're facing, but with joy and confidence is going to get a hold of the attention of your neighbor, your coworker, the student who's in your class, and they're going to want to know what is it that you have that I don't, that you're able to look at all this and walk through life with a smile on your face, confident in the future. And it's our opportunity then to introduce them to Christ. And so while many might be hesitant to hope that this year is going to be better, I believe it's important as Christians that we stir each other up to hope for a better future because we know who holds our future. It is Christ and to use this time to advance his kingdom on earth. All right, let's look at those first six verses. I know you have your Bibles open, Psalm 108, verses one to six. David writes, O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise even with my glory. Awake, lute and harp. You can, you can almost see him just waking up in the morning and immediately beginning to stir up the music for his praise. He says, I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the people. And I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your mercy is great above the heavens and your truth reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens and your glory above all the earth that your beloved, that was David when he penned it and that's you and me today, that your beloved may be delivered, save with your right hand and hear me. Oh, I love this. David begins, he, he says, I'm going to praise him, right? I'm going to praise, the God, uh, praise the, the God of my salvation, the God who has delivered me my whole life. And David could sing with confidence because he had learned through personal experience that God always comes through no matter who or what the enemy is in David's life. Oh, you who have studied the scripture, we know that David facing a a ravenous lion or a bear who wanted to eat the sheep in his care, that David met that challenge and in the strength of God was able to kill those beasts. We remember that David met the the giant of Gath, the Philistine who, according to the description there there in Samuel, looked like a big hunk of bronze. I mean, there wasn't wasn't a piece of flesh anywhere to, to, to point at with a spear or a sword, except that one little tiny place on his forehead where God guided that stone so that he might kill the giant. Or think of the mad king, King Saul, who tried on numerous occasions to kill David or the confederation of kingdoms that rose up against David when he was finally the king to try to destroy him, or even a lengthy pandemic that David and Judah experienced. And what David discerned and what David had learned and what David had come to experience in his life and that every battle, every difficulty, no matter what the odds were, David knew that God would grant him victory. So he says, I'll praise him. And notice in the progression of the psalm, it's the first 
thing that David does. He begins the psalm with praise before the battle is entered into and before the outcome of the, of the battle is assured. In other words, David tells us that we are to praise the Lord before we head off to fight the enemy. We are to praise him for the victory that has not yet been won. It is, in a sense, a declaration of faith in God. In other words, not to go and see, well, let's see how it turns out, and if we win, then we'll praise the Lord. No, to go into the battle knowing that the God that we serve has no rival, no enemy who can stand before him, and that with him we will be victorious. And so we just go out like David, praising the Lord, confident in victory in God. It reminds us of David's words to King Saul when he came to Saul and said, I'll go and fight that Philistine. And King Saul looked him up and down and said, you're just a boy. <laughs> you don't even have armor. This guy's been killing people since he was your age. He's a, he's a, he's a killing machine. And David responds in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 36 and 37 this way. He says to King Saul, your servant has killed both lion and bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. <laughs> wow. Seeing that he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, the Lord to deliver me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear. Listen, he will deliver me. Not he might, not I hope. He will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. You see, David understood. He's communicating to you and I this morning that when we go to battle with the Lord at our side, and leading us, and covering the back, right? All around us, when the Lord is with us, there is no one and there is nothing that can defeat us. And my question this morning to you, saints, my question to Pastor Paul, are we singing the praises of God for the victory that he has in 2021 for us? Or are we overcome by all of the discouragement, all of the ugliness, all of the division, all of the, the things that we see and hear on the news. Am I convinced, are you convinced, really sure that the Lord is going to grant us victory over the sin that Satan may have kept you bound with for the last year? Are you ready to be set free? Do you believe that he can set you free from that sin that you might then be a trophy of his grace and be able to be a light to those who are struggling with that same sin? Do you believe that God can bring you out of that financial pit that may have come as a result of unemployment in the last year or underemployment in the last year? Through no fault of your own, you find yourself in a desperate financial strait and you're wondering, will you ever get out of it? Is there any hope for the future? Are you convinced that God can help you and to lead you out of that pit? Are you sure that God can bring healing in a divided family? And there are many divided families, even within our congregation and within the church, where people are just, even within a household, divided over all of the different issues that seem to be you know, screaming for our attention. Do you believe that God can bring healing and unity in your home? Are you convinced that he can bring you the help you need this year? And God has promised, as David reminds us, that we can face every enemy in 2021 with great power and great confidence, sure again, as Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The question then is, will we, like David, step into the fray? 
step into the battle confident that Jesus will give us victory? Or do you struggle this morning, honestly, just between you and the Lord, do you struggle thinking, I wish I could be like David, I wish I could be like Paul, I wish I could be like Esther, but frankly, I am just consumed with fear. Fear of the future, fear of failure, fear that there's not going to be provision for my family. Can I encourage you this morning, do not leave this building without taking, uh, taking uh, uh, the opportunity to come forward after service and allow the pastors and those up front to pray with you to strengthen your faith. That's why he's put us together as a body. When we're weak, we need someone to lift our hands, right? We need someone with a gift of faith to pray faith into our lives when we have little or none. So here David encourages us, take, to, encourages us to take God at his word, to wade into the fray in the battle with a song of praise to God on our lips and confidence in our hearts with, that we will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So the first point of our study this morning is to praise him. Secondly, look at verses seven to nine. And I bracket or kind of titled this section, I will listen to him. Listen to what David writes. He says, God has spoken in his holiness. So David's listening. I will rejoice and I will divide Shechem and measure the valley of Succoth. God declares Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is my helmet and my head. Judah is my lawgiver. And then listen to the enemies that God is going to defeat for David. Moab is my washpot. Over Edom I will cast my shoe. And over Philistia I will triumph. These three verses remind us of one of the most difficult military challenges that David faced during his time as the king of Israel. If you go back to Psalm 60, again, where these verses have been lifted out, you will read in this superscript, which, which, uh, which is what the, uh, the scribes placed above the, the psalm to give you the, the context. Here's what it says. They tell us that Psalm 60 was a mittam of David for teaching, and here's the context, when he fought against, when he fought against Mesopotamia and Syria of Zobah, and Joab, that was David's general, returned and killed 12,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. The historical setting for Psalm 60 and what David's reminding us of here in Psalm 108 can be found in 2 Samuel chapter 8, where we find that God was using David to expand the nation of Israel to God's ordained borders. In other words, you go back in, the, in Exodus and back during the, during, uh, during the time of Moses, and God literally tells us what the borders of Israel were to be. But God told Moses in Joshua that as the people of Israel crossed over the Jordan to take possession of the promised land, that it would be a number of generations as the people grew in number that God would then use them to drive all of those people out and to take their territory. But we get all the way to King David many, many hundreds of years later, and we find that the children of Israel had been disobedient, and they had not taken possession of the land that God promised, even though they had the numbers and the strength to do so. And so God raises up King David, a warrior king, to do battle against their enemies and to drive those people out and to push the borders of Israel to those God-ordained areas. And so in 2 Samuel 8, we find that David is doing just that. He has just destroyed and dis, uh, uh, defeated the Philistines in the west. So the, the, the region of the coast is now all under the control of Israel. 
And now God leads David to go north and to liberate the land that God had promised all the way to the Euphrates River. But as David and the armies of Israel march against Mesopotamia to the north and march against the, the, the people of Syria, the Edomites to the south take advantage of that and they attack David from the south. So what you find in 2 Samuel chapter eight is David is suddenly surrounded. He doesn't have an enemy just in front of him. He's got an army behind him and they are vastly outnumbered. So how then can David in Psalm 60 and in Psalm 108, these three verses that we just read, how can he be so confident (laughs) that God is going to grant him victory in this impossible situation? And the answer is this. Verse seven, God has spoken his holiness. David is listening to the Lord. In other words, David is listening to and looking to the Lord for direction in battle. He's not listening to his commanders. He's not listening to the wisdom of men. He's looking to the Lord and asking, how do you want me to fight this battle? And let me illustrate it this way. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Samuel chapter five, just for a moment, because this is a very important truth I want you to see that has real application to the spiritual battles we fight today. 2 Samuel chapter five, and we'll pick it up in verse 19. As you're turning there, let me just tell you what we see David doing is asking God who he was to fight and how he was to conduct the battle. And when he heard from the Lord, as he did when he fought with the, the Mesopotamians and the Edomites, he knew that he would have victory. Second Samuel chapter five, verse 19. Note how it begins. So David inquired of the Lord, right? That's New King James are saying David asked God. <laughs> He's gonna ask God. What does he ask him? He says, shall I go up against the Philistines? Great idea, right? The Philistines were a powerful people that occupied the entire coastal region of, what, of, of, of Israel. And, and before fighting against them, David says, should I fight with them? God's response, or David says, will you deliver them into my hand? And notice the Lord's response. He said to David, go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. So David obeys. He went up to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there, and he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. In other words, David looked at just the the overwhelming defeat of the Philistines, and it looked like a flood. Like the army of Israel broke like through a dam like water and just wiped out everything in front of it. And that's how the victory went. Therefore, David called the name of the place Baal Perizim. Verse 21. We're told that the Philistines left their images there and that David and his men carried them away. And then the Philistines went up once again and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. In other words, another battle. They got defeated once but they're still trying to destroy David in in Israel. Verse 23, therefore David inquired of the Lord. Note the repetition. It's a new battle, but David doesn't assume or presume that God is gonna work the same way that he did the last time. It's a new battle, a new front. So David inquired of the Lord, he said, shall, or excuse me, inquired of the Lord, and the Lord said, you shall not go up. In other words, don't go up the way you did last time, Instead, circle around behind them and come up upon them in front of the mulberry trees. God tells David, verse 24, and it shall be that when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly 
for the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. So you can imagine, God's telling David, listen, you wait till you hear the sound of my chariot in the trees, and you follow, I'll take care of the battle. Verse 25, David did so. In other words, he obeyed what the Lord told him to do, and the Lord drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Gazir. Whoa, we need to stop for a moment and take some notes here because this is the strategy that David employed to destroy the enemies of Israel. There's instruction for us as we face the battles in in our life this year and as long as the Lord tarries. In other words, when we see a battle, we need to ask God, is this a battle that I'm to be engaged in, right? Maybe God doesn't want me in this battle, but is this a battle that he wants you or me to be involved in? If so then we need to listen to God's wisdom regarding how we are to fight the battle and then obey the Lord and we will see then the victory as God fights for us. And the result, here we read in 2 Samuel 5, is that David defeated his enemies, the Philistines, in two distinct battles that forever weakened the Philistines so they could never rise again during the reign of David. And for you and I, It's a reminder that we need to listen to the Lord. So let me contrast now David with another great king, a king that I admire, and probably if you're familiar with the scripture, a king that, that in fact, you may have named a son after him, King Josiah. Oh, my. What a a godly king. You read the account of his life, and as a young teen, he's already been been given the throne of Israel, but as a young teen, he, he, he catches on fire for the Lord. And he becomes passionate to make sure that Israel is rid of all of the idolatry that had had marked Israel for so long. And so he just began from Jerusalem throughout all of Judah, all of Israel, to dismantle every idol, every temple, destroy all the priests, remove idolatry from the land once and for all. He's a great king, godly king. But unlike David, he died prematurely because he did not listen to the Lord. Let me show you. Second Chronicles chapter 35, beginning verse 20. Second Chronicles, go ahead and roll over there real quick. Chapter 35, verse 20. And I want to read this scripture because I know a lot of believers have read this and been really troubled by this, as I was for years, thinking, whoa, why didn't God show up here <laughs> and keep King Josiah alive? And in Second Chronicles, we find the answer. 2 Chronicles chapter 35, verse 20. Now again, this, the, the context is Josiah has rid the nation of Israel, of Judah, of all idolatry. He's restored the worship of the one true living God. Things are great. Verse 20. After all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, so the Pharaoh, came up to fight against Carchemish by the Euphrates River. And Josiah went out against him. Now, let me give you a little context. Egypt's to the southwest of Israel, and Necho has gone along the coast following what's called the Via Maris, the way of the sea, which is a public highway, okay? It's, it, doesn't, it doesn't really belong to him. It's a public highway. And he's following that up, and he's going to go across the top over Israel, over to the Euphrates, to, to Karchemish, to fight the Hittites. Verse 21. Oh, excuse me, and Josiah went out against him, verse 20. But he, that is Necho, sent messengers to him, that is King Josiah, saying, what have I to do with you, king of Judah? 
I have not come against you this day, but against the house with which I have war. For God, in the word God there is Yahweh, right, is talking about the God of Israel. Not the God of Egypt, but the God of Israel commanded me to make haste. And then Necho says to Josiah, refrain from meddling with God who is with me lest he destroy you. Verse 22. Nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised himself that he might fight against him. Now, if you've got a highlighter pen, or you like to underline your Bible, you need to underline this next sentence. Josiah did not heed the words of Necho from, from the mouth of God. So he came to fight in the valley of Megiddo, and the archers shot King Josiah, And the king said to his servants, take me away, for I am severely wounded. And his servants therefore took him out of the chariot, put him in his second chariot that he had, and they brought him to Jerusalem. And so he died, and he was buried in one of the tombs of his fathers. And all of Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Josiah's fatal mistake, his fatal decision, reminds us that we are not called to fight every battle that is on our horizon. Every time we see a conflict in life does not mean that God has called us to be engaged. And you look at our society today so divided. You pick any subject and there's a, there are a million voices that want to argue about it. And you can spend all day, every day on social media involved in conflicts that God has never called you to be involved in. Listen, Josiah reminds us that his mistake was number one, he didn't ask the Lord. There's no, in Chronicles and Kings, there is no indication. They stopped and said, Lord, do you want me to fight with, with Pharaoh? Nothing. Added on top of that, Josiah had the prophet Jeremiah living in Jerusalem with him at the time. Could have knocked on the door and said, Jeremiah, listen, I'm not hearing clearly. Would you ask the Lord whether this is a battle I ought to be engaged or not? Didn't do it. And because he did not ask, he did not hear, and he refused to hear when even Pharaoh told him, your God is behind this. Back up, buddy, or you're gonna get killed. And as it tells us, this was from the mouth of God. Instead, King Josiah simply saw an army marching through his land, again, on the public highway, but he took it as an affront. By the way, modern rabbinical teaching is that King Josiah read Leviticus chapter 26, verse six, which you can look up later, saw it as a promise that he was supposed to apprehend and therefore went to fight this army that was going through his land. But the reality is that as we read, Pharaoh wasn't coming to fight with Judah. Rather, God was sending him to destroy the Hittites, a common enemy of Judah. And so the lesson for us is that we need to listen to the Lord and let him choose the battles in which we are engaged. If we do that and then follow his direction, we'll always be victorious. But if we're going to freelance like Josiah, you are assured, I am assured, defeat. No, we've got to pick the battles that God has picked for us. Those battles we'll see victory in. Let me illustrate it this way. For all of you parents, raising children can sometimes be a battle. <laughs> right? Oh, no, 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 no. Right? From the time they are born until the time they move out of the house, right? There are battles to be fought. And when we were raising our children, they were, and when they were teenagers, so we're going back now to the uh, 80s and 90s, there was a move within the Christian church in America to identify the main 
battle that we should be fighting as secular music. In other words, they looked at all the secular bands out there and said, these, these secular bands and their raunchy lyrics are leading our children astray. And so people began uh, bringing in guest speakers and videotapes were floating around to homes and home studies and churches where they had all this documentation to show that this band were really Satan worshipers and their lyrics were going to lead your children into Satanism and blah, 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 and all these things. And so as a result, churches all over America high school groups, young adult groups, would gather together and based on the model in the book of Acts where in, in Ephesus, where the new believers brought their books of magic and burnt them, now they're having record-burning parties. Oh, it's exciting. Oh, I remember just the waves of emotion as kids would bring all their, you know, raunchy, secular music and throw it on the fire. Oh, you know, all the vinyl burning. We probably all got cancer as a result of breathing it in. But in any event, right, we were so excited about it. Oh, and then the media got a hold of it. And so in Newsweek, at Time Magazine, on local TV stations, they've got, you know, a youth group, you know, committing their, their lives to Christ and to purity, and they're burning their music, right? All this secular music. But the problem is it didn't last. Well, literally, within just a few short months, the kids replaced everything they burnt, <laughs> and were still listening to all those raunchy lyrics, well, Alman Coney, who is in the music industry and a Christian and one of the leaders, in fact, probably the most prolific leader in this record-burning thing, God got a hold of his heart. He said, you're fighting the wrong battle. Oh, yeah, I appreciate your concern, and it is a legitimate concern, but you're not doing it the right way. God showed him that rather than invest all this time fighting the record companies and bands, what he needed to do was simply teach young people, God's word. How to make good and godly decisions. And thus equipped, those young people would be able to look at the lyrics of the music they're listening to and under the conviction of God's spirit, because now they have his word in their heart, we're able to look and go, wow, that just really grieves my heart. I, I, I really don't need to be listening to this. And so they then gave up all that music and focused themselves on Christ. The point is that just because we see a battle doesn't mean we're supposed to be involved. Or even if we are, we need to ask the Lord, how do you want me to fight it? Friends, there are a lot of battles out there. (laughs) I don't know about you, but I, I wonder how much time we as individual believers and corporately the body of Christ, especially here in America, have wasted time and resources fighting battles that God never called us to engage in. Think about all the things that people are upset about, all the things that people are divided about. Oh, I could be involved in all that stuff, but God has called you and I to one purpose, to preach the kingdom of God, to call people to repentance, and to point them to Jesus Christ, and then once saved, to disciple them to walk as men and women of God. We're called to advance His kingdom, not any other. And so ask the Lord if you're to be engaged in the battle and then listen to his instructions and obey him. And if we will do that, we will be assured of victory. Last point, verses 10 to 13. David declares, I will gain victory with him. Notice verse 10, he says, question, who will bring me into this strong city? Who will lead me into Edom? Now, here's a kind of fun factoid for all of you Bible scholars. Edom, right, 
the kingdom to the southeast of Israel, on the other side of the Jordan River, the strong city he's referring to, Petra. Oh, in the Old Testament, it's called Selah, S-E-L-A, which means rock in Hebrew. New Testament, Greek, Petra means rock, the rock city of Petra, where Indiana, Indiana Jones and I, we rode down, right? No, I'm kidding. But if you've been there, you know that during the height of its, of its, of its, uh, you know, of its power, it was, an, it was a city you couldn't defeat. It was surrounded by mountains, and the only way in is in this teeny tiny little valley that was incredibly easy to defend. And so David's saying, you're going to have to bring me into that strong city, right? Because I can't do that on my own. And then he says in verse 11, question, is it not you, O God? And then he says, who has cast us off? In other words, he's remembering their times of disobedience where they didn't have victory because they weren't walking with and serving God. He says, and you, O God, who did not go out with our armies. In other words, he doesn't want to go anywhere. He doesn't want to fight the Edomites, the Mesopotamians, the Syrians, the Philistines. He doesn't want to fight anybody unless God goes with him. Verse 12, he cries out, give us help from trouble, for the help of man is useless. And then his declaration, through God, we will do valiantly, for it is he who shall tread down our enemies. Woo! Get a little Pentecostal about that, can't you? Come on! <laughs> I mean, it's like, yeah! Like, let's take on a Philistine or two. Give me a Philistine, right? Giant of Gath, bring him on. <laughs> Listen, David, again, was a man of war. He's a warrior king. But what I love about verse 13, and you see this all through David's writings, he never took credit for the many victories that he won. He was always giving the Lord credit and pointing to the Lord. It was the Lord who treaded down our enemies. It was the Lord who defeated his in, our enemies. And you look at David's life as compared to even the good and godly kings who came after him, and what you'll find unique about David's life is he was the only one of the kings of Judah. The only one of the kings of Judah who never relied on anyone else except God. Oh, you look at some of the other great kings that followed David and they would make a mistake in their life where they're like, oh, I don't know if I can handle this battle, so we're gonna hire the Syrians to come and help us. Or we're gonna spend money and bring the Egyptians in. Or we're gonna bring the chariots from over here to help, you know, to strengthen us so we can defeat this enemy. And every single time a king did that, God rebuked them. David understood what we need to understand is that God is sufficient. He doesn't need any help. <laughs> I often think about the, ba- the, the, the battle of Armageddon that we read about in Revelation. The armies of the world and following the Antichrist have gathered in the valley of Megiddo to rebel and to fight against God. And we read in Revelation 19, Jesus shows up and they're defeated. I'm just going to put this out there for you to chew on, but I don't think there's any swords, you know, like flashing. I don't think there's any cannon fire. I don't think there, I think Jesus just shows me, goes, really? <laughs> like, and then everybody's dead. Because <laughs> Paul tells us in Colossians that God holds the universe by his word. He created it with his word. He maintains it by his word. You got a bunch of bad guys. It's like, you don't have to fight me. Just with your word, Jesus speaks and they're all done. There is no fight. There's no battle. And so we recognize then that if we want victory, we have to trust in God and God alone. The application then is, listen, as we're looking back and closing out a difficult year, 
Now we're a month into this new year and things are kind of like, whoa, is it really going to get better? And if so, how soon? The question we need to ask ourselves is, in whom do we trust? Am I looking to my government stimulus check, which I'm happy to receive? (laughs) Right? Am I looking to family or friends? Am I looking to kind of connive and weasel and maybe kind of like a little compromise here just to make sure we can put food on the table? Or am I looking to God and God alone? Listen, if, if you're leaning this morning on a resume, or if you're in the world of academia, your CV, right, to get you a new job, or your education, or experience, savings account, family, friends, your good health, whatever it is, then you're not trusting in the Lord. Although all those things can be useful, all, God can use any and all those, but the truth is that we need to look to and lean on no one but Christ Jesus. And if we do lean on anything or anyone else, we're always going to be disappointed. Let me give you an example kind of as we rule this to a close. I think of Moses in Egypt. Here was a guy before he he went to the desert that had all the benefits the world could offer. Truly, he was well-connected politically, raised by the daughter of Pharaoh. Had the best education that money could buy, literally the best education that money could buy as we read in the Old Testament and as the author of Hebrews confirms. He had unlimited wealth, unlimited resources at his disposal, and he had the respect of the people in power. He was truly, as the title of the movie suggests, a prince of Egypt. But he discovered very quickly that none of that made a bit of difference when he tried in his own strength and with his own resources to accomplish the will of God. Now, I know you're familiar with the story, but it bears repeating because it emphasizes what God wants us to take away this morning. He was using the wrong weapons and he was looking to the wrong sources to bring victory. Oh, you remember the story? Moses, knowing he's been called to deliver his people out of bondage in, 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 in Egypt, comes upon a, an Egyptian uh, taskmaster abusing violently one of his brethren. And so Moses looks right, he looks left, but he does not do what David said, look up, ask the Lord, is this the battle I'm supposed to be involved in? And so he's not listening, he just freelances, kills the Egyptian, buries the body in the sand, and you know the rest of the story. Utterly failed. The people of Israel rejected him, the people of Egypt drove him out, and the Lord sent him out into the desert for a period of 40 years <laughs> so that he could learn that there's only one who can give you victory, and that is the Lord. And then when we read Moses, or read of Moses returning to Egypt, in the power and the authority of God to deliver Israel, he now stands before Pharaoh, no influence at all in the courts of power, no longer recognized as a prince. Rather, he has a staff in his hand instead of a sword, no riches with which to bribe the king, and he comes as a shepherd, the most despised people in all of Egypt, but with God with him, the most powerful king, the most powerful nation in the world, is destroyed through the work of God in Moses' life. And so the question for you and I this morning, what are the enemies, what are the troubles, the trials and tribulations that stand between you and the Lord today? What are the things that are rocking your faith? What are the things that are, that are bringing fear into your life? Can any of them stand before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who literally spoke the worlds into existence? No way. 
what? No, not even. And what I love about this psalm is that the Holy Spirit inspired David not to include any of the enemies or any of the trials or tribulations that maybe David had in mind when he was penning this. In other words, it was written, again, inspired by the Holy Spirit, very general. No specific enemy, no specific trial, so that for God's people then and in every generation until the king returns, we can look at Psalm 8 and we can find application for our trials, our troubles, our enemies. If we will do as David suggests, then we are going to find victory in the Lord. And so we look at a battle and we praise him before the victory is won because we know that with God there is not an enemy who can stand before us. But we ask him if this is the battle that we are supposed to be involved in. If he says it is, then we're listening to his strategy. How do you want me to engage in this battle? And then we'll be confident that the victory is ours. Again, I think this is a message that we need to hear, that the church needs to hear, that believers need to be here because I find that many in the church today lack confidence, they lack hope, they lack courage, they don't have excitement about the future, and that should never be the tenor of the church. No, the church is, (laughs) hey, I've read the back of the book, and we win, (laughs) right? Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I encourage you this morning, whatever trial, whatever tribulation, whatever thing is standing between you and the victory that God has for you, as I close in prayer, bring it to the Lord, and then let's be excited about how the Lord directs you, and we can celebrate in the weeks and the months ahead how God brings victory into your life and uses you and that victory as an example to those who don't yet know Christ as they see your hope and your confidence in the King. Let's pray. Father, this morning we are blessed by our brother David and all that he's penned for us in this psalm. And Lord, seriously, I think we all look forward to a time in eternity (laughs) when we can gather together at the Hebrews Coffee Inn and just sit down with King David and talk to him about his experiences in life to ask him about the inspiration that came upon him when he's put pen to paper and and gave us these beautiful psalms of instruction. But Father, our prayer this morning is more than just having read and kind of come to understand what the psalm is about. We are begging, Lord, that you bring application to our lives. Father, truly, would you cause us to always seek you first and to praise you before engaging in any battle confident that whatever you call us to, that you will bring victory into our lives. And then, Lord, as we ask for your wisdom and direction, give us open ears that we might hear clearly how you would have us engage in these battles or if you would direct us in another way. And then finally, Lord, help us and strengthen us by your Spirit to obey whatever it is you call us to do. And as we do these things, we will be confident that you'll gain victory in and through our lives. And we pray that that victory would not be for us alone, but a testimony to those who don't yet know you, that they might see in our lives something so radically different than what they're experiencing in the world that they'll want to ask us who and what it is that we know that we can face life with joy and with confidence and in victory. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. 
Today's sermon comes from Pastor Paul Lester. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Paul's teaching ministry by visiting ccmodesto.com. 